Hello and welcome to another episode of Death's Door, a podcast all about the competitive and awesomeness of Sorcery Contested Realm, everybody's favorite card game that they're in love with because today's Valentine's Day and we're loving it. That's what we're doing here. We're loving Sorcery. Um, And you know who I love, Bronte. Who do you love, John? Is it going to be me? I do love you. I've I've loved you for a very long time. I also love my froggy bottom boys. Because today <laughs> is all about <laughs> today is all about a sorcery card that you have a crush on. No, it's not. That's not all we're talking about today. Um, but I wanted to say from the top that my sorcery crush is Felbog Frogman because, like, look at that dude. And also, shout out to Plague of Frogs. Maybe I just have like a frog thing. Like I'm kind of like into frogs Uh-oh, in John. A, a certain way i don't know maybe it's a maybe dangerous thing to say in the sorcery realm because uh there are some spicy frog cards out there and i don't know if we have the money to try to attain them they're spicy frog cards oh my god you haven't seen the spicy frog cards yeah and when i say spicy i am being uh extremely euphemistic because they are straight up <laughs> uh hot there's things happening Ooh, in those hot. cards hot frog and what about you bronte who is your sorcery crush who are you crushing on these days who's your favorite little guy or beast or whatever <laughs> this valentine's day uh i am going to have to throw my uh throw my love behind ruler of thal particularly the uh frank rosetta art i know Okay, this this may get me just absolutely skewered, and this is probably not going to be the only time this episode I get absolutely skewered for saying something. In general, I'm not, like, in love with Frank Frazetta art, but Frank Frazetta <laughs> has uh, an unparalleled and almost, like, impossible-to-process love of the human male form, and those rippling mm. thighs on Ruler of Thal? Crazy. I Crazy. There's just there's just not much art out there that is as spicy for men <laughs> as Frank Frazetta's art is. Okay, so prior when I was like, oh, maybe we should talk about our sorcery crush, like peel back the curtain. I was talking about, I was like, oh, I actually, I, I love Vile Imp just like as a card and also like as like a little guy, like a little cute little guy. He's like got a little fireball. But that's like the normal art. The one art that I really love is a Frank Frazetti uh vile imp that's like it's like the alt art or whatever and mm-hmm. okay he's same thing this vile imp this alt art vile imp from is frank Frazetti is like is like ripped like that is that is a vile imp yep <laughs> like no. he is he is doing some vileness with that he looks <laughs> awesome that's <laughs> such a great art i love that yeah i love that art i, I feel like frank Frazetta is like uh now, Frank Frazetta art is almost as like homoerotic as Jojo's Bizarre Adventures. Like the the rippling <laughs> male forms are just they're beautiful. They make you feel things and amazing. Am I thinking am I thinking of Jojo's Bizarre Adventures of the right thing? Is that the anime? Yeah. Okay, yeah, no, I I watched like Yep. <laughs> I don't think we've talked about this. I've watched like <laughs> half of like the third season with my um one of my one of my family members over like this past Thanksgiving or like 
some other some like family holiday or something where I like walk in the room and they're watching an anime and they're younger than me. And I was like, hey, how's it going? They're like, good watching this. And I'm like, what is this? <laughs> like, what is happening? Like, I love anime. I'm, you know, I like the classics, but man, that was that was a trip. It's been a minute talking about sorcery because we have had so much stuff. I've been sick, so if you, if my voice on this podcast recording is no bueno, then that's why I've gonna just got this whole sickness thing going on. Some like major plumbing issues, just life. But we're very happy to be back today and to talk about sorcery contested realm because we are here today with some pretty like awesome, exciting stuff that's happening. In some the sorcery competitive world, some 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 big stuff. You know, this this podcast is all about competitive play, playing to win, and really like maximize your strategy and innovation and deck building. And there's some crazy stuff happening with that right now in the game. Um, and the biggest thing is going to be the updated sorcery rulebook for 2024 moving forward. So our um, wizard of the technicalities and our <laughs> <laughs> like you're not a judge but like you know the rules a lot better than i do um i'm gonna let bronte take it away and talk about all of these updates for the sorcery rule book and what that means for competitive play i would love to i love talking about rules i love reading rules for this game for rpgs for board games for whatever reading rules for things i don't play they're fun i, I like the rules you're one of those you just like read <laughs> rules i don't know how many times i've like been around you and like we're oh check out this like tabletop rpg i found or this little like indie rpg or this like board game i've been playing it's just like oh thanks for this like 500 page rule book <laughs> pdf man i'm not gonna read this <laughs> like no don't lie to me you read all the rule books i send you i know it yeah yeah totally I did read this one though, so like. <laughs> I want to start off with a with with the question though, which is why is talking about the rules, knowing the rules, and keeping up with rules updates important for competitive play? Like, we're not just talking about the rules because they changed and it's hot content. We're talking about it because this is important to our kind of mission and our ethos. So, John, why do you think knowing the rules inside and out is so important? Wow, what a very good question. Um, <laughs> no, like, it's it's important because you, like, if you have a, f a good grasp of what's going on, you will be able to newly evaluate cards. Um, like, because there's some cards that kind of, like, aren't as good as they were anymore with some of these updates. And then there's some other cards or other abilities that's like, oh, this now is playing at a different angle. This is a new strategy for... Um, what I could be doing because of these changes. And also like, it's just good to know what you are able to do in the context of a game and with your resources and things like that. Um, and you really want to have like a firm grasp on that. And you get that by paying attention to these updates. You get that by making mistakes. Um, I make made and continue to make a lot of mistakes still <laughs> playing sorcery because it's, it's a complicated game. It's there's, there's a lot going on. You know, you, you want to pay attention to these rules updates if you're going to be trying to, like, play league matches and competitive games and constructed events and things like that. Um, so that way you are, you know, tip-top shape, ready to go. You got to be a well-oiled well machine. Absolutely. You got to be a well-oiled machine. And, you know, sometimes if you're working on an assumption about an outdated rule or, like, uh, 
if you're considering the pre-errata version of a card that's in your hand, it's going to change how you're thinking about the game that's happening in front of you, and you don't want to get blown out by thinking your card works differently than it does. Or, you know, you don't want to have your opponent play a card and you're like, that's not a problem because you're thinking about an old version of the card and actually it is a big problem and you ignore it for too long. It's like the worst feeling to like play a card and you're like, yeah, this is what, this will kill this thing because of this. And then it's like, oh, actually there was a rules update or they errata that ability or text. And then you're just like, this is the worst card. Like (laughs) I was so happy to draw this and now I don't even want to look at it. Like, it's so yeah you gotta you gotta know what your your stuff does to be playing with it yeah you you don't want to be playing against me play your card and then have me push my glasses up my nose and go um actually uh it doesn't work that way anymore uh which i feel like i do constantly sorry to every single person i've ever played against ever in any game um but yeah knowing the rules gives you a competitive edge it allows you to think about more creative ways to use your cards it allows you to kind of game the system in your favor and that's that's how you get advantage that's how you win games there is an important clarification that knowing the rules does not mean you should use it to like rule shark people into like weird corner cases to be a jerk but knowing the rules and knowing like how all of your cards would interact with an opponent's and interact with each other to the like utmost degree, then knowing those rules, you can kind of explain to an opponent like, hey, that thing that you're doing is not going to work. And it, here's why. And this thing that I'm doing is going to work. And here's why. And here's like the evidence behind that in said rule book. Backing someone into a corner with rules and whatnot and rules lawyering people. It's a... Uh, not my favorite thing to have happen to someone or to have happen to me or like to watch full an unfold in a match because it's it's a crummy feeling to be like oh i thought that worked like this and now i'm losing and everyone's mad at me yeah 100 percent. that's that's not a fun situation to be in but you know if you can like use your cards in a way that your opponent doesn't expect or that like you know maybe your opponent knows you have uh you know, X card in hand, but they think you're going to use it one way and you, you know, know the rules well enough to use it in a way that they're not expecting, that can that can put you ahead and not necessarily be a feel-bad moment. So let's dig into some of these rules changes. Uh, we're going to start with the little stuff uh, and just kind of go through, talk about each of the changes and maybe, you know, what they what they mean for competitive play, what they mean for design and stuff going forward. And the first one that jumped out at me as I was scrolling through the annotated uh, rule book is that uh, on page three, kind of right at the beginning, they uh, changed some wording from like your opponent's avatar to any opposing avatar. And this is one I think uh, a lot of people will be excited to see because The phrasing any opposing avatar to me hints at some support or interest in or at the very least understanding that people like to play multiplayer games. This uh, any opposing avatar implies you're playing against multiple people to me. So, you know, we may see some interesting multiplayer content coming out or at least some kind of informal support for the people who have been trying to develop ways to play multiplayer. 
Have you? I have not actually played multiplayer. I I assume it looks like a ton of fun. Um, it looks almost like a you know like we've talked about how sorcery has that really nice blend of like trading card game and board game. Playing multiplayer sorcery looks like like an awesome like board game night kind of thing with like a big group of people like that that's cool that they you know like you said it's very subtle but it is like a hey we know that multiplayer is a thing maybe we'll print some cards for it that will help those situations or maybe like down the line whatever we're just here to support that um but yeah it's good to see that they're listening to the community yeah i I think multiplayer card games are super super fun i haven't actually played any four-player sorcery though so I'd, I'd be interested too. I'm kind of intimidated by the deck building though. I feel like I'm only just <laughs> kind of scratching the surface of deck building for one V one and to, uh, add in like a four person free for all or something. Ooh, sounds, sounds like a lot, but I would love to try it out someday. And you know what, uh, Bronte doesn't love. It's this next rule. It's this next rule. Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> here's the second thing I'm going to say today that's going to get me uh, yeeted out of the sorcery community. And uh, <laughs> so on page five of the updated rule book, um, we have seen a popular and fan favorite rule get an upgrade. What used to be known as the silver rule has now... Uh, come to be known as the golden rule and this is the the rule that states some cards are intentionally worded informally or necessarily like uh compacted so use common sense and be cool is the golden rule i'll be honest with you john i kind of hate this i i hated the silver rule and i hate the golden rule uh <laughs> you don't like common sense i it's like a four of in most of my decks yeah no i mean i play it i play it in every deck and i sleep with one <laughs> under my pillow but yeah lowercase common sense for the golden rule yeah not that not um, that interesting tell me about that bronte why 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 is that not where you want this game to be headed well i think that the golden rule as is as it's currently formulated is just kind of like vacuous and useless um it it seems to reflect a design ethos where they want to be able to do a thing and not be extremely clear and extremely precise about how it's worded because they want it to sound cool rather than want it to be you know like fully codified in a rigorous rules framework and I just don't like that. That rings really hollow in a TCG setting in particular. And I do want to contrast this real quick to Rule Zero in EDH, uh, you know, the most popular format of Magic the Gathering. Uh, Rule Zero is a similar thing, but basically it says, uh, like, you and your playgroup decide how you want to play, what power level you want to play at, what cards you do and do not want to play, and that you as players have agency over the game that you are playing together. This, I think, is a decent rule. It maybe doesn't work out in practice as much as I would like it to. But the thing that separates, like, rule zero from the golden rule is that rule zero is a rule that has been appended to an already, like, rigorous and robust rule system in a game where people know the ins and the outs of the games very well. And I feel like sorcery isn't quite there right now. These games, right. these games are complex, almost inherently, like necessarily. There's so much complexity and 
that's in card design, in like implementation and deck building in realm building as you're you know playing sites and stuff right playing sites and yeah and i feel like that complexity should be embraced as like at a design level and as much as possible i think it should be codified into like i've said a robust rule system that can be communicated to players even if it feels kind of like legalese even if it feels too systematic even if it doesn't feel cool i feel like that having that framework is important and not having that framework can really quickly lead to tension and frustration and confusion you know this is such an interesting thing because right there's nothing wrong with using common sense in a game and being cool to your opponent no those two things are like yeah there's nothing wrong with that, and we like will state very plainly that there is nothing wrong with that being sort of the halo above every single game of sorcery that you should be playing. Every time you sit down, yeah, like use common sense, be a nice person, everybody's here to play this game to have fun and do cool things. But it's exactly what you're saying that, okay, if you're not going to like define some of the complexities that you're writing on these cards and instead you're going to opt for lore or like flavor or design aesthetic over actual playability then when you shortcut playability people don't play it like it just more so becomes this cool thing to look at and hell i they're awesome to look at the the world is really cool in this game. I've talked about that continuously. It is one of the main reasons I have been focusing my time on this game versus other games. But it's okay to like take off the like wizard hat and put on <laughs> your lawyer hat and be like, actually, like here's how all these things work in tandem with each other. It's just I I really you know it's I don't want to come across as like rude to the design team or anything like that. But it's I, I do think. That when you have this like wishy-washy sort of thing that's happening, it's it's negating all the other complexity. It's like, it's mm-hmm. it's why why are we setting that as the tone versus like not just having this all be very laid out in plain language for everyone to like yeah if you need to go through and have every single card that you officially print have like a rules text version of it like yeah that's fine <laughs> i do that that's perfectly you know? okay but they're just cards where like the flavor of the actual card trumps the technicality of the card and like the playability of it and like that's fine i, I get what you're doing but like what if that card was like maximized on its playability versus mm-hmm. maximized on its coolness or like both you could have both like I, I don't know. It's it's weird. It's really weird. So I have some examples that I can think of, and like the first one, not particularly egregious, is uh, a card that I will be talking about later in the episode too. A uh, slumbering giantess. You know, Genesis. Uh, when you know she enters the realm, she falls asleep and is disabled until damaged. That's like it's flavorful. The giantess is slumbering, and I love the idea of a giant just sleeping and sleeping until it's needed to wake up for some reason. Um, but the it's like a text, Snorlax situation, exactly. And I love that. I've loved that since <laughs> you 1995. Come across, you come across like, it. 
the text falls asleep doesn't necessarily convey anything uh, useful to the game. And I don't think it adds that much to the flavor because she's already the slumbering giantess. I think that you can believe in your player's uh, ability to make some connections a little bit. Be like, oh yeah, this giantess... Yeah, this giantess is disabled. She's slumbering. I love that. You know, we have stuff like, uh, is it is it Crave Golem that at the beginning of a turn it uh, moves and attacks like a nearby minion? That usage of attack, you know, fall probably falls under the golden rule, but maybe it doesn't. You know, like as as written, uh, it's unclear if that card moves and strikes something or if it moves and actually performs the attack action which otherwise is a basic action you have to activate on your turn during your main phase and so that creates you know some ambiguity there that's just less than ideal and like i said it can lead to tension it can lead to frustration and it can just lead to ambiguity and confusion the the example of like crave crave golems is really good because like i think right now in the design space and the actual like way the like or the the card pool that we have it hasn't really been an issue but i can ima- easily imagine a scenario where like if there's future cards printed that say like something happens when an opponent an opponent attacks right mm-hmm. opposing avatar minion or like opposing minions attack or something and it's like well is is this if it says attack on the card then i would take that as attacks but other people could take that as like no crave gravel is is striking because this is like part of the ability and it's not the attack action that i elect to do on my turn and this is like another thing of the lore of like this is a, a crazed goblin running around just like attacking everything that's awesome. That's great. It's a, it's a cool, flavorful card. But you really, like... W- we already know that attacks and strikes are, like, different things in this game. So why not just, like, go a step further instead of your answer being, like, oh, it's just, like, be cool, man. Just, like, just like be chill. Use common sense. <laughs> like, just, like, spell it out. Like, just, just, just spell it out for me. Just tell me. Like, I understand that the world and the lore of this game is, like one of the main driving factors behind it and they want to create this like fantasy realm and everything but it is okay to like peel back the curtain and every now and then a like rules person will be like like by the way that doesn't work like that and then they close the curtain and like the fantasy goes on (laughs) like it's fine and here's here's i think like why why that causes a problem or why golden rule causes a problem um because they they want to take this design ethos. I understand that. I understand wanting to go for that aesthetic, and I totally respect that. Uh, so they put the golden rule in there to kind of, you know, like hedge against these corner cases. Um, and yes, absolutely. If you and I are playing a game, we can read Crave Gollum and be like, okay, let's say that it works this way. But if you want to have any sort of organized play, formal or informal, if you want to have a person from one part of the world playing a person from another part of the world, and if you want to have them competing, even if it's a fairly casual competition, you can't have different interpretations of the rules because that will lead to unsatisfying outcomes. One person will play a card 
thinking it works a certain way because their group, their town, their state, their country has ruled that it works this way. Right. And that will not be a universal ruling. And, you know, the judge team has done a really good job of, or like the, you know, the informal judge team uh, has, has done a really good job of clarifying a lot of these rules, kind of getting them sorted and making them fairly accessible and, you know, going in the Discord, asking a rules question, you're almost always going to get a good answer very quickly. But I I feel like also the the amount of like questions we see about the same things um, indicates, one, that it's a new game and that not everyone knows the rules and that's fine, but it also indicates that there's just not enough clarity for people to feel confident reading the rule book and then playing the game and adjudicating it. Um, and, you know, I think in general, like, if players do want to agree on a set of, like, house rules, that's fine. That should be encouraged and supported. We should be able to make modifications. Like, if we want to make new rules for playing multiplayer, we can do that. And I love that. But it, we just need a solid framework to build off. And the previously silver rule being promoted to the golden rule just doesn't <laughs> give me faith that like that framework is going to be prioritized yeah and and like that that's completely fair and again like we i almost wish it like it wasn't like a rule and it was just like a like a ethos like of game philosophy like game philosophy like yeah use use common sense be cool and cast wizard spells love it awesome Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. that's what every game should be about in their philosophy but yeah it's it's weird to have that as this sort of framework like you were saying um one thing that i am excited to talk about is on page 11 of the rule book update uh we're both you know decking out (laughs) you have no more spells in your spell book you go to draw one. You no longer are on death's door. You just die. You just lost lose the, game. the game. You just lose the game. When I saw that update, I immediately like went to Curiosa and just started. I was like typing in keywords like put top card to like graveyard opponent mill. Like I was just like, how, okay, like what what is the mill card pool? for this mm-hmm. game right now and how do I make my opponent's deck out the thing is you kind of can't there aren't a whole lot that are specifically like that player puts the top five cards of their spell book in the the graveyard but I mean there it's definitely a very interesting and exciting um, update to the rules because now we have a direct way to just end the game like we have something that is it's not you know one of the things i really love about sorcery is this this um mechanic of death's door hashtag death's door sorcery pod dot substack dot com but like (laughs) there there is no other way to just be like you lose you lose you lost the game like there there's no equal footing of now we're both on death's door and maybe you can come back from that You're, you're just done for and i think that's really exciting um, and again, it might hint towards the fact that they're like looking at mill or looking at these like alternative win con sort of things, which I love it. I love it. I love me some alternative win cons. Yeah. What, how are your thoughts about this new, um, decking out update? I love it. I love to see it. I thought it was interesting that decking out, like being able to not draw a card took you to death store previously, but I think that 
taking decking out up a level to if you draw from a deck and you or if you would draw from a deck and you can't you lose the game i think that's important because while it may be incredibly rare i can see situations where you are locked in a stalemate and neither of you can end the game say that you and your opponent are both surrounded by gnome hollows and it is seeming impossible to get like <laughs> minions in to end the game and none of you have any direct damage for whatever reason you used it earlier in the game you didn't build it in your deck because you're silly i don't know i can see a situation where you get to a stalemate at which point you and your opponent are just drawing cards and trying to see if you can change the game at all if there's not a rule for you lose the game if this happens then at some point you get to a point where you have no cards in your spellbook, you have no cards in your atlas, neither does your opponent, and there's just nothing you can do and the game ends in a draw, that's an unsatisfying conclusion. So I like the kind of pressure that decking out can add. And then I also think it uh, adds design space, like you said, for mill and for like forced draw. For Yeah, that was, that was some of the first thing, like the first forced draw was something that I was curious about i i was like searching through the card pool to see what was already out there for that um and also this this scenario that you're outlining like there is a way to almost capitalize on that when you know i think about the finals match between um death speaker and enchantress where some of those games like the first game was like uh, the finals match for the championship of season three if you didn't see it death speaker one we have a whole episode about death speaker but like it that first game i remember was like over an hour long or something mm-hmm. and it was just like it was such a grind fest and with this new ruling there's a part of my brain that turns on it's like okay can i use that against you like right. can i can i have my deck be like you know mono disable minions mono like sort of fog effects or like um artful dodge like a roll dodge roll whatever that card is i do not know names of cards dear listener <laughs> please don't like i'm barely making it through normal life so like i don't know names of cards whatever um but you know like dodge roll and things like that you know are, are there ways that you can kind of like artfully and skillfully like craft a deck that like Essentially, it's like your opponent is just going to do the thing they do, and they have a force draw every turn, and they play cards like Apprentice Wizard and Grandmaster Wizard that get them closer to zero, and you are just like a brick wall of like not, it's just like no, you know. I, I think that's a really interesting thing um, that, that that we might see, and maybe some future cards could help amplify that if they're not exactly interested in like a mill sort of mechanic similar to magic if you're not familiar with mill it is target player would put x amount of cards in their graveyard from their library so it is just directly like your library your spell book goes in the graveyard um which can be kind of feel bad some people don't like it i think it's fine it's a strategy to win but i it's exciting to see this update and i i really like that there is a new rules update that is like you lose the rule says yep. you lose. It's not death store. You lose. Um, game so over. there's a lot bye of bye. fun. Yeah. Game over. Bye bye. I think that that is a really fun uh, place to play in. Yeah, me too. Um, I think those are the like 
the biggest little rules changes. Uh, let's run through just a couple of the smaller ones real quick uh, before we move on to the really spicy stuff. Uh, on page 13 of the rulebook, there are some clarifications about the surface and subsurface of sites. Um, and so it says specifically, all units above a site are considered to be on the surface. Uh, and I think that this is helpful in particular in the case of Airborne, just makes it less ambiguous for new players. When I was first learning the game, I learned that there were different levels of the surface and I read Airborne and thought, okay, so that's a different level of the surface, right? right. It's, it's in the right. sky. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not a different level of the realm. It is just on the surface, but it has a movement ability and, you know, some extras. So I like that clarification there. Um, on page 19, uh, we get a ruling that auras can occupy the void. Um, this doesn't really change a lot, uh, but it's an important clarification because it makes evil presence function I think as intended, and at the very least, as people have wanted it to function. So evil presence can right. now yeah. be in the void, and you can cast a ghost ship into the void, and it will get charged. Previously, it was only getting charged if it was uh, cast onto a site, and that's not really useful for ghost ship. So that's cool. I think it opens up some future design space. I mean, that de that definitely, like, that's that's a cool one that I'm I'm interested in specifically evil presence in this situation like maybe there are other auras that will occupy the void that will be beneficial but i, I specifically like evil presence is one that you and i were were talking about and you showed me and i was like oh like this is you know surprise ghost ship kind of thing like <laughs> that's that's kind of that, that's exciting like that's as we've talked about previously some of those ships can be pretty aggressive um so maybe this is the faded aggressive water deck that we yes. long for i can't um, wait aggressive pirate spirit deck sign me up i i also i love again i will say it with my full heart every single time i love the flavor of this game and a ghost ship appearing out of the void because of like a aura that was cast called evil presence hell yeah oh yeah, oh, yeah <laughs> awesome i love it and that's a good this is a good example of rules and flavor uh intermingling very very well so yes 100 percent um we also got some like clarifications on movement forced movement and carrying minions you can find these on page 28 of the rule book there's not a lot to say about these they kind of cleaned up the wording made it a little bit more clear but it's you know no no big revelations here no cards are going to really work differently um, they also clarified how static effects apply on page 30. And so this lets us know definitively that static effects apply before anything else does. Uh, so now our best card ever, though the worst card in the game, uh, Root Spider, is very clear about how it disables minions before even their Genesis abilities can trigger. Okay, yeah, that was my big thing that I wanted to clear up on this is that Root Spider is still top dog. Root Spider <laughs> shuts down those Genesis abilities. Um, and it, it's, it's, this is a very, you know, like we were talking about earlier, this is a great way to be like, here is a very needed clarification. Um, and this to me, like, this isn't common sense. I've seen situations arise where someone's like, well, like, no, like, my, I would get my Genesis ability because mm -hmm. that's like part of, 
it's entering it gets the genesis that happens right away it doesn't and then it would check for like root spider like i've heard those arguments and it makes sense i understand why you would make that logical conclusion but it's really nice that they uh just continued to have root spider dominate the game long live root spider page 30 it's written in stone let's go um yeah and then also i will just like recommend everybody check out the uh glossary of the new rule book there's a bunch of useful clarifications um i don't think we need to go through them all but brush up on them see if there's anything that used to be ambiguous that isn't anymore uh i find the glossary is now way more useful than it previously was so on to the actual big changes the ones that we're excited about the ones that we know you're excited about uh this is a huge one this like is also one that was not necessarily like common sense applicable i saw so many people asking about this in the rules channels but uh on page 25 we now have a change to how the defend triggered ability works um so all movement modifiers can now be applied to those abilities. That means that if you have an east-west dragon that moves freely sideways or something with movement plus X, it can apply those abilities when it would be able to defend. So that that is huge. Like that that scenario of my my nomads, my drag my east-west dragon, my cloud spirit, like can now defend in that same movement range that that it has and like you're playing these cards because they have added you know they're better than average better than normal movement ability um and now they get that on the defense that's huge that's that's so big and it all it opens up a card pool that um maybe previously you were like eh, i probably won't play east west dragon it's good but it's not that good but it's like now you have a pretty good defensive creature and also a pretty good <laughs> offensive creature like it just mm-hmm. it just buffs buffs the whole card yeah i think that this rule change gives a good buff to cards that deserve it i like cloud spirit is a really like interesting card it has a lot of good abilities for being a two mana uh minion but you know it wasn't really played that much and i don't even know if it will be played in the future but now it's a better option than it was and i appreciate that kind of a rules change makes things better it doesn't really shift anything out just to to clarify you can find that on uh, page 25 of the rule book uh the other big one the one that lit the world on fire is the uh, change <laughs> that was made to projectiles. This one's on page 30 of the rulebook, and this is probably the biggest change from the recent update, the one I've seen people talking about the most. Uh, projectiles now, by definition, mandatorily begin at the site that they are fired from. Uh whereas previously you could choose to start your projectile on an adjacent site it now starts only in the site it is fired from and they mandatorily ignore allies at that beginning site when determining their flight path and they also must mandatorily strike any enemy unit at the site that they are fired from this is huge yeah why why is that so important like i i it took me a little bit to process this rules update um 
because apart from like grapple shot um and firebolt i don't play a whole lot of projectile things and not super common for for some of the things i've been trying um just like why is that change so important so this change it seems to be intended as like a light nerf to grapple shot and i think that it accomplishes that pretty well but basically uh with the new projectile rules, it's easier to get away from a unit that is trying to grapple shot you. So previously, mm. if you were on one site and then an adjacent site contained, say, an enemy avatar of Earth, there was no way for you to take a step and be safe from grapple shot. Because even if you were one step away, or you know, if there was one site between you... Even if there was one site between you and a big beefy avatar of Earth, uh, and you played a minion to that site in between, the avatar of Earth could still take a step up to that intermediate site, fire grapple shot, and have it start in your square and strike you, and it would completely go by your minion. So now you need less room between you and an enemy unit to avoid a grapple shot. And this applies to Pudge Butcher too. Um, You're telling me they so. nerfed they nerfed smash and grab? They uh, nerfed my favorite combination of grapple shot plus Pudge Butcher? My, I'm sorry. My whole, oh, man. See, like, this is one that I, like, honestly, I, I hadn't really, like, like I said, like, I felt like I had a good grasp on it, but now, like, you're doing a great job of walking us through this but man that's uh that's unfortunate but i get it specifically because what you're saying about the like you can't escape some of these projectile cards no matter mm -hmm. what you're doing and that just makes a projectile card or a like forced whatever like a punch punch book butcher effect what whatnot just a, so much better than a lot of the other things you could be doing um that, because you previously couldn't escape it Oh man, R.I.P. Grapple Shot. Yeah, long, long live Grapple Shot. Rest in peace, Grapple Shot. <laughs> grapple Shot is dead. Long live the grappling hook. But no, the the thing about this nerf is, I kind of like it because these cards are still very, very strong. And if you get grapple shotted by an Avatar of Earth or a Pudge Butcher, you're still in a really bad position. Now the rule just gives you like. A 5% chance to get out of it whereas previously you had like a 0.05% chance to get out of it <laughs> <laughs> right right no and, and that's like being on the receiving end of a, a grapple shot or a butcher to where you literally just can't escape it and you have that like you know maybe it came really early or like came at a point in the game where you don't have a lot of defenses that added pressure because of the pace of sorcery right now like it's just it's backbreaking to be stuck in that sort of like up against the wall scenario of a grapple shot or or a butcher it um, really so, is yeah no that 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 makes sense and like now when your opponent plays you know a turn one mixed terra and then turn two pudge butcher and turn three they grapple shot onto your avatar's space and you <laughs> haven't been able to do anything like you can actually defend against that because before once that grapple shot or once that pudge butcher was on top of your avatar it was 
effectively impossible to get away from. Now, if you move your avatar and you play a minion on the Pudge Butcher's uh, site, you stand a chance. You're still doing bad. You're still bleeding out of every possible place that you can bleed out of. But, like, you might run away and live to cast another spell on turn four. <laughs> you might not, but it's a possibility. So are there any things ha- happening with this this big rules update for projectiles? I see you have something here about Ice Lance. Talk to me about Ice Lance. What's oh, that about? Oh, my God. I mean, how, how, <laughs> my, how frequently and how how intensely are we going to have to lament water <laughs> i don't know if i've ever cast Iceland. i've read it i'm reading it right now yeah oh man yeah that's uh here's a live reaction from the studio <laughs> my poor boy <laughs> my poor Iceland. it Walk is us through it, useless um and it, it hurts especially because water has so few cards that are like interesting and i think this might be the only water projectile i, I don't know don't quote me on that but uh there's yeah, uh, so... the um the harp fu- oh yeah uh, harpoons there is the harpoon yeah. yeah that's that's right um but what was once a decent but not amazing projectile in water now is basically unplayable uh it can only reach three squares now so uh, Ice Lance says shoot a piercing projectile. It deals three damage, then two damage, then one damage uh, to up to one min or unit at each location that it enters. Basically, you used to be able to use this to deal three damage to a minion that was encroaching on your territory, and then like two damage to something else, maybe even two damage to uh, like an opposing avatar, or one damage to an opposing avatar on that final square. Now Ice Lance has to start at the square it's cast from so it means it only has a range of three squares rather than four squares like it previously did that means it can only deal three damage to a minion that's in your square and it just takes away a lot of the flexibility that the card had i don't think it will see absolutely no play but it's just less useful than it used to be also here comes my best girl again. Uh, slumbering giantess <laughs> players are now, you know, in a state of mourning for for our beloved sleepy girl, and this includes primarily myself. She is noticeably harder to wake up now. I'm playing, uh, as I have talked about in previous episodes, a fire earth uh, sorcerer deck that uses slumbering giantess. Um, and I used to be able to wake her up with like a heat ray or a fire bolts, and that was like fairly easy to do. It's still pretty easy, but it's a little bit harder than it used to be. Uh, because now if Slumbering Giantess is on the square of the caster, she cannot be hit by any of those projectiles. By by the rules, the all the effects of the projectiles are ignored at that starting square for allied units. So if I have mm. a Slumbering Giantess standing on top of a... Um, river of flame for example the river of flame can't hit the giantess with one projectile and then shoot the other two somewhere else right and no that 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 is huge um it is kind of an unintended it's kind of an unintended consequence of this inability to hit allied um minions now at, at these locations but you know like that sounds like it would be a good thing but this is sort of like that some of that tension that that's going to come up 
Um, and, and maybe like that was part of the decision. Like they saw that like, oh, she's kind of like too easy to wake up with some of these <laughs> um, projectile things we've got going on and whatnot. And that example of the river of flame is, is a very good one. Man, poor sleepy girl. She can't catch a break this episode. I know. And it also it also means that like, say I play a sight into the middle of the second row right in front of my avatar and I play a uh, slumbering giantess there. In my deck currently, I would, you know, then maybe try to play a um, colicky dragonette on her square, and then at the end of turn, mm. shoot her to wake her up. Um, but now I have to place the dragonettes differently. This means that, you know, you can focus less damage into a single square. It's not always a bad thing, but yeah, it's just a little bit harder. Definitely. And okay, walk walk me through our other big update that we have here for the the updated rules book for 2024 what in the world is a storyline excellent what is that? excellent question <laughs> uh you may have previously seen the storyline referred to by judges as the timeline and that was uh not necessarily an official rule it was kind of a system they had worked out to make some things work but the storyline now exists within the official rules i think this one is huge uh, this is analogous to the stack in magic so for any magic players out there you know that you cast a spell you trigger an ability it goes on the stack where it waits to resolve that's uh basically what this is but I think that everyone needs to read the rules on page 31 about the storyline and know how to properly resolve multiple at, uh, effects at once. And I'm, I'm really glad they included this because not having that framework made the game a lot less smooth. You have to know how to resolve these effects uh, in order to have a satisfying and smooth gameplay experience. Give me an example. What's an example of one of these complicated scenarios that's going to hopefully be smoothed out by this uh storyline uh, yeah i was i was thinking of it as the timeline in my head so thank you for that uh, yeah uh, of course um well i just want to i'll get to an example but first i i want to say i compared the storyline to the stack but it does not function identically to the stack and this is important this is going to make the game play very differently in some instances than magic players would expect in Magic, uh, when you put an ability on the stack, every line of text from that ability is put on the stack simultaneously together as one ability, and it all resolves as a whole. It will resolve sequentially, but nothing else can happen until that whole ability is done resolving. So if like you put an effect on the stack and it triggers something else, that won't trigger until the entire effect has resolved. Um, this is not the case with the storyline. Effects uh, in sorcery that are put on the, onto the storyline are broken up basically into component pieces. Uh, so this can you know lead to some unexpected outcomes if you are thinking strictly in terms of the stack. So as an example, uh, when your minion uses the move and attack basic ability, you actually put two events onto the storyline. You don't just put a move and attack onto the storyline. You basically declare that you are moving and attacking, and then the attack is put on 
the like beginning of the storyline with a declared target. So you declare that you're attacking at a site or you declare that you're attacking a minion. Then uh, you put move onto the storyline with a declared path. So you say, I am moving one step forward. Uh, and then so when these go to resolve, the storyline, like the stack, follows a kind of first in, last out sequence. So the move portion of the move and attack basic ability will resolve first, uh, as long as the path that you have declared is still legal. And then once the move has fully resolved, the attack will occur, but also, once again, only if the target of the attack is still legal. So this means that you can declare a move and attack ability with, say, uh, your slumbering giantess, and you move her onto a space that has a root spider. Once you do that, the attack will fail to resolve, since the minion can no longer legally attack or strike. So despite it being on the timeline already, that attack becomes illegal because uh, the move and attack basic ability checks two events, not just one single move and attack event. I mean, it makes sense when you think about it, like I am a snow leopard and I want to go attack that uh, foot soldier over there. I would, before I am pouncing that foot soldier, I am moving forward to, towards the foot soldier and then I am then attacking the foot soldier but if i got to that space and i found out that there is a i stepped in a spider's web right i am disabled by root spider i some other magic ability is happening in that space that i didn't see now i can't attack um mm -hmm. for for those of us who are sort of <laughs> visual learners here um but yeah no that that, that all makes sense because you're not like your your minions aren't going from space to space like doing like a flying kick you know they're not like moving <laughs> and attacking at the same time is there anything else that's like really super important to know about the uh the storyline here that is is going to help people process this update yeah l let me give you one more example so in this case let's say you're casting whirling blades on your avatar of earth so despite the fact that Whirling Blades is one spell, it has like multiple effects and multiple events that would be put on the storyline individually. So um, Whirling Blades says, uh, you know, a unit may take up to two steps and then strike each enemy unit along its path. Um, you when you're putting this effect on the storyline basically you cast whirling blades it resolves that causes a number of different things to be put on the storyline subsequently so you put uh strike all enemy units along the path on the storyline and then you'll put those two steps or only one step if you want to onto the storyline. Uh, so this means that your avatar of Earth's power is actually calculated only at the end of the movement uh, because it doesn't strike in between each step. It strikes all at once at the end. So if your avatar of Earth has five power at the starting site and then four power after the first step and three power after the second step, by the time strike all enemy units uh, is 
at the point where it's resolving on the storyline, your avatar will have three power and it will deal three damage to all of the struck units, no matter how big it was at each of the locations as it passed through them. Uh, this also adds some, you know, complications with everybody's favorite complicated card, uh, Giant Shark. Uh, so once again, <laughs> despite the fact that Whirling Blades is a spell, Giant Shark will trigger potentially between each of your Avatar of Earth steps if you're stepping through sites in its body of water. So like you, there's a Giant Shark, there's an Avatar of Earth, the Avatar of Earth has Whirling Blades cast on it, it takes a step, and then Giant Shark will trigger if possible, and then attack the, or fight, rather, fight the um, Avatar of Earth, and then the Avatar of Earth will take another step, and a trigger will happen again, if if that's what's happening, if you step into a water site. If that's the, that's the path you're going up, yeah. So basically, like, whenever you're you're taking a step, you're, like, even if the the card isn't done like you're saying in this whirling blade scenario that like you need to be checking for these things at each of those steps that you're you're taking and then yes. kind of like okay i'm going i'm going north one we all good we all good okay i'm going east <laughs> you know like exactly and this is different from in magic say if you cast a spell that was like a uh, target creature deals three damage to another target creature uh, and say you had your whatever your creature deal three damage to an opponent's creature if something triggered by that damage happening that would only happen after the spell was fully resolved no matter what else was on that card text but like in you know in this case uh we're going to check the storyline for new events that need to be put on it after every single action happens not after the spell resolves necessarily um and once again to bring up root spider this means that if you cast whirling blades on a minion it can still be interrupted by root spider if it takes a step on top of uh, a site where root spider is burrowed that means that root spider now invalidates basically the rest of the spell root spider it's just it's just doing its dang thing doing its doing doing its dang thing um th this is all super helpful if I, I want to point out too, if anybody ever has like rules questions for any of this stuff, obviously we're going to link the uh, updated rule book in the show notes for this at com. But there's also the Discord for the Sorcery Contested Realm official Discord where there is a rules question channel. And if you are in the Sorcery League channel, which you probably should be, um, there is also a rules question channel there where you're going to get um, some insight into some some of this like rulings and um, updated information from from folks who are playing a lot and the judge team the there um, so that's that's always super super helpful because this this um, storyline it it is it's a lot to swallow but once you are like playing with it and like it, it makes sense right it's kind of like exact the comparison the comparison with the stack and magic is is very apt it's not one for one but it is like once you start learning how the things that you're doing, the cards that you're playing, the abilities you're triggering, whatnot are happening on the stack, are um, your movements and actions and sorcery are happening on the storyline, then it, it's just going to become a lot easier the more that you do it. And it's going to become a lot easier 
as you ask those questions and run into some of these sticky situations. Don't assume that you know everything um, <laughs> from the jump because you because you don't. There's too much. There's too much to know everything. What's another good thing to know with this rules update? I think we've got one And last, make it a spicy one. One last good one to know, and I think it is going to be a spicy one, so I, perfect. Uh, there have been updates to the stealth mechanic, and I feel like it's possible everyone was waiting for us to talk about this one. This one is, is big. Um, basically, stealth has been buffed. Previously, stealth simply meant that a unit couldn't be targeted by abilities and they couldn't be like intercepted or defended um, against until stealth was lost. You could, however, shoot a projectile in a direction that you knew a stealth minion was and deal that damage to them. So that meant that they were, you know, it was possible to remove a stealth minion if you had some projectiles that could deal damage. Now, however, stealth units cannot be hit by projectiles no matter what. Uh, well, not no matter what. If you're using True Sight Crossbow, you can still hit stealth minions and stealth units, but whatever. Uh, stealth minions, by <laughs> default, cannot be hit by projectiles. Uh, so this makes them a lot easier to protect, and it makes it more feasible to like move them into position over the course of a couple of turns. Um and I also, uh, I can't remember if this was officially in the rules before, uh, but it is for sure now. Uh, stealth is tracked by a token per the rules now. So you put a little, you know, marker on whatever minion is stealthed. And then once it loses stealth, you just take that off. And that's how you keep track of whether or not your, uh, your minion has lost stealth. But yeah, this change is interesting i think that we're gonna see some people playing around with stealth oh definitely and that's the thing it makes them easier to like protect you're saying but it makes them like on the inverse they're so much more annoying to deal with um so if there are some some stealth minions that you've been kind of like tinkering with or thinking about um now is your chance to really like these are gonna be annoying to deal with <laughs> like how 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 do I deal with a stealth minion now if I can't hit it with like a projectile? Are we talking about like just area of effect things like earthquake or like yeah? What, so what, 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 how do you do it? AOE, not Avatar of Earth, area of effect. Uh, <laughs> uh, area of effect abilities are useful. So you know, Wrath of the Sea, earthquake, that's all gonna gonna work still. If you know, you know, like wave shaper and tap down uh, minions at a site that will tap a stealth minion. Um, but I think, actually, the the most popular way we're gonna see stealth being dealt with now is that decks probably even decks that aren't running air are going to run a number of watchtowers. And I also think that we will see scent hounds because John, may I remind you, uh, scent hounds are in ordinary, so they can be fetched with common sense. Scent hounds, yes, yeah. I totally forgot about scent hounds. I'm so glad that is one that like, I I love that card. I I've, I was like tinkering with it in some early deck building, and I was like, eh, it just didn't make the cut. Like, it's too corner case, right? Like. Maybe you'd put it in a sideboard if stealth was a problem or something, and, and you were in a tournament where you, you needed a sideboard. But, like, yeah, now, like, it's just 
I don't know. Is that an auto include? Is it a situation where you're running like, you know, a lot of folks now will run like one or two copies of Dispel um, that they can grab off of their common sense. And are you going to just like throw in the one of Scent Hounds because you run into the stealth deck and you want like game one access to um, dealing with stealth? I, I don't know. I, I think that's a, a definite possibility. I think it remains to be seen whether or not these changes to stealth are a major buff or just you know like an okay buff so stealth may not be actually overpowered right now but i think we're going to see a lot of people trying to figure out whether it is overpowered or not and that also means that we're going to see a lot of people building to counter it and i mean infiltrate was already a scary card uh, now cards like fade are better i think like sneak thief and um, far east assassin in particular are better because they were so easy to kill with projectiles before those cards are getting better and i would not be surprised to see anyone running a common sense package to just cut one something and add in one scent hounds uh you know counter someone's infiltrate to just get a, get around whatever stealth they're working with, get around their fade in your back row. And yeah, like I said, also watchtowers, I think. We will see some watchtowers. It's exciting to see like some of these cards that have not really been played um, or like played very, very like corner case. But, you know, where when these, it's like we talked at the top of the episode that if there are these updates to the rules and you know the rules well and stuff like it could kind of just completely change like your deck building ethos and the and the way that you're approaching deck building um yeah like maybe you go try mono stealth and it crushes the next thing that we want to talk about here after all of these major major rules updates um be sure to check out the Substack link to act if you haven't had the chance to read through the rule book we'll we'll link to that and everything but we have uh an absolutely massive amount of like tournaments coming up for sorcery, which is very exciting, especially for this podcast, because we are going to be paying attention to some of those tournaments. We, um, at least one of us are going to be going to those tournaments. And we today wanted to spend the last little bit here talking about what you are going to experience at these tournaments. If you are not someone who has spent a lot of time going to in-person physical card tournaments like say a magic grand prix or magic con in a city or something like that and but you are traveling to go to sorcery events coming up what does that look like for you um and just really quick here i want to run down the upcoming events that we have um all of this can be found in the sorcery official discord but we have sorcery con which is this weekend, um, February 16th, this weekend. That's so exciting. I'm Unfortunately, I am not going. I don't, do not think you are going either. Um, we no, talked about I, it. but I would have loved to have gone, but it uh, just didn't work out this time. This would have been a terrible weekend for me to go. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do want to say a uh, shout out to a local uh, sorcery scene person here, my friend uh, Anthony from Forked TT is going to be at SorceryCon. So if you run into Anthony, hit him up, tell him I said hi, uh, tell him to make sure he gets my cornerstones signed, damn it, because if he comes back and I don't have those signed cornerstones, I'm going to be really upset. That's like one of the best parts of these events. If you've never been to these in-person all-day cons or, you know, whatever 
qualifiers, things like that, that, you know, there's obviously going to be a lot of sorcery happening, but there's fun stuff. You can to meet your friends that you played with online. You get to meet artists of the game or like designers or things like that. Um, so it's going to be really cool coming up. We have sorcery con in Seattle, uh, Washington in the States, February 16th to 18th. We have the Baltimore courtesan cup qualifier next week, February 24th in Baltimore. And then we have the West Virginia courtesan cup qualifier, March 9th uh, in Hurricane, West Virginia. Um, Then we have the March of the Mortals, March 16th in Denton, Texas. And I do believe our good friend Bronte is going to be there um, slinging some spells. Tell me about it, bud. Oh, yeah. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be in Denton, Texas. uh, And I'm going to be... I'm going to be winning that whole thing. That's let's just put it like that. That's it. It's, you know, you heard it here first. Bronte is going to go undefeated that day. Yeah. Um, He is not going to get a single loss. I will be mean to everyone I play against. Yeah. You better rules lawyer everyone into submission. (laughs) (laughs) Just watch me just grind everyone into dust because I know the rules so well. No, yeah, I'm going to be there uh, Friday. There are going to be some uh, like pre- pre-tournament events happening i think someone's maybe organizing a draft or a sealed tournament and then saturday is tournament all day unfortunately i can't stick around for sunday i have to fly back and go to uh uh, mean girls on like broadway (laughs) that uh my partner and i are going to so how sad for you that you have to go see such a such a fun thing after playing a weekend of fun I know. Sorcery. I'm going to have such a fun Friday and Saturday and then a terrible Sunday going to see an awesome musical. It's going to be terrible. <laughs> what a terrible thing. That's awesome. Uh, we'll be sure to link all that information um, about that and keep you updated as we, as we get closer to March 16th. Um, yeah, and signups are still open for that. So if you are thinking about going to Denton, Texas, make sure to get in before uh, the event is capped out. I believe it's at 64 players. There's still some spots left, so sign up. Yeah, definitely. In the weeks coming up, we have Australia and New Zealand Championship in April 6th and 7th in Melbourne, Australia, which would be really cool to go to. And then we have the Florida Courtesan Cup qualifier in Punta Gorda, Florida on April 20th. That sounds awesome. There's so much going on. And when you go to these events, you are going to have long days You need to hydrate. You need to bring some form of snacks. You need to be nice to your opponents because they're all experiencing this long day of playing a mentally taxing game uh, with you. They're all, you know, hopefully not crammed into a corner or anything. Um, But, you know, you're sitting close corners with other human beings. You should not be a jerk. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you... Are everybody's, you know, this is this is really the first sort of roster of some of these in-person sorcery events. So it's going to be really exciting, but it's also kind of like nerve wracking because like there's these new rules update. It's the first time we're all like maybe a big group of people are playing this game in person. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you need to stay hydrated, have a lot of fun, make tight gameplay. And you also need to just straight up not be a jerk <laughs> to the people around you. Yeah, um, please be nice. So, yeah, what what else sorts of things, um, as someone who's played a lot of in-person card games, should people be uh, prepared for? 
Okay, so absolutely, I just want to reiterate again, stay hydrated, bring a couple water bottles, probably, you know, if you get there at 10 a.m. and you don't leave until 8 p.m., it's going to be a long day. Um, bring a Gatorade or something, too, if you want. Yeah, uh, eat, I, eat beforehand. Yeah. Stay eat, hydrated. Bring food know. with you. Bring some granola bars bring or, like, like jerky yeah, or... Like, Put a sandwich in your bag, something. Although, uh, and this is something I'm really excited. Yeah, (laughs) bring four (laughs) or five four locos. That's the only way I've ever made it through a tournament. Every time I win a tournament, most tournaments I play, I I have a camelback of uh, four loco. (laughs) That's how I exist. It's just the the tube right to my mouth, full of four loco, and I'm just jittering my way to the top eight. Yeah, and the great thing about this is actually like. When you're jittering so hard that you inevitably spill your four loco all over your cards, the color actually looks really nice on sorcery cards in particular. So that that water stain is beautiful. <laughs> um, Speaking of spilling things on your cards, <laughs> when you're in person, sleeve your decks. Sleeve your decks. I know that this is kind of like a, maybe it might be new to folks. And I don't know what the sort of official ruling is right now as we all sort of like do this weird liminal space with uh, tournament organizing and organized play together in these early, um, the early time of this game. But you should be sleeving your cards. You should maybe be double sleeving your cards. Um, you, I was talking earlier before the show and something that's really kind of fun is that you should be sleeving your spell book and your atlas in different colored sleeves, which Mm -hmm. is very not conventional for other card games. Like if you could imagine if you sleeved your lands in magic, a different color than the rest of your deck, or if you sleeved like your, your energy, your basic (laughs) energy in Pokemon, a different color than the rest of your deck, that's an automatic like disqualification from that tournament. But in sorcery, it is encouraged. Um, I believe, you know, I, I, we haven't got strict updates about organized play, from the actual company or, or some of these, you know, tournament circuits, but it is very much um, encouraged to be doing so because it is public information that you, your opponent, knows how many um, sites and spells are left in either your atlas or your spell book, and that is a very easily identifiable way to do so. It's going to mm-hmm. be easier for you after a game to pick up your cards, shuffle them up, sort them out by color, and just, like, get ready to go for the next game. Um, and it's a lot of fun. I love sleeves and I love <laughs> aesthetics oh, yeah. of games. So, so many cool it, It's going to be a blast. Sleeves. Very, very, very colorful um, play spaces that we're going to be having. Uh, a couple other things I, I wanted to say about tournaments um, and something that I'm really excited about for Sorcery Con and March of the Mortals. I don't know about the Courtesan Cups, but... <clears throat> SorceryCon and March of the Mortals are both scheduling in lunch breaks to the tournament, so the situation will be a little bit less dire than playing a 12-hour, 8-round GP uh, in like a Magic tournament. But So you'll, you'll have some time to go get food or eat something that you brought with you. That's huge. Uh, I also want to say, as obvious as it seems, uh, when you're packing things up to, to go to a tournament, don't forget to bring your deck uh don't forget to bring your spell book and your atlas uh we've all been there we've all been there some cards or a whole deck or whatever (laughs) it's it's a nightmare worst feeling i would also recommend 
keeping the your tournament deck strictly separate from all of your other cards. It's cool to bring like a trade binder, though be careful, watch your backpack and stuff. Stealing does happen. It will probably happen at some of these events, unfortunately, but you can protect yourself against it. I like to put my bag like under my chair and, you know, like put one chair leg through a backpack loop, put my leg through a backpack loop, keep it between my legs so that I can feel it at all yep. times. But yeah, bring trades if you want, bring other decks if you want, but make sure that your tournament deck is by itself in its own box with no other official cards. That's just going to make sure that there's no ambiguity about if you're swapping out cards illegally between um, between games. Uh, like, I don't you know necessarily expect anyone to be doing that, but you just want to have yourself covered. I also like to bring a uh, like notepad or something to keep track of life totals and also to write down relevant information about the match. Like if you want to remember the name of the person you're playing against, if you want to remember the deck they're playing, what hand you kept, what cards you mulliganed, those are all really useful data points for analyzing your game after the fact or doing a write-up of your game. Uh, I, I encourage that. Uh, jot down all kinds of notes. That is something that I picked up from Magic um, after doing the tournament circuit for a while that like will just follow me into all other games. And you don't see it a lot with other games or like maybe you don't see it with new players because you get, you know, I get it. Like you have a cool life countdown die that's like really pretty and you got it with your uh, pre-constructed decks and whatever. But like pen and paper is going to beat out other forms of if there's any sort of communication error or a problem like oh i thought you were at 10 and but your life your dice says 12 pen and paper you have like a a record (laughs) a record keeping sort of play by play that is going to happen and it's just it's just nice It, it it feels you know you know if you haven't played this this game in person you know you you should really try and get a couple practice rounds in even if it's just like by yourself goldfishing because this this game has a lot more dexterity to it there's a lot of complexity there are things happening on the grid system that are going to be like you are going to be spending time moving cards around and whatnot and that may not seem like a lot but it is going to eat into your clock and that is a problem um when we have these long-winded games happening. And that also happens when you spend time, you set your hand down, you pick up a pen, you write down a relevant data point, or you change life totals. All of those things add up, and you should really be like feel comfortable moving and kind of like the dexterity of the game, this free-flowing thing happening when you're in these tournament situations. I know it sounds silly to have this suggestion to someone, but it really, really does help when you're in these these situations. So um, just, just try and come prepared and, you know, be ready to be playing a mentally taxing game all day. Mm-hmm. And it's different than, you know, playing EDH all day with your friends and like you're sitting around, you know, playing cards and having fun. It is more mentally taxing. You're going to be turned on. Your brain's going to be on longer. I also want to emphasize real quick that uh, component of time. Again, a lot of these tournaments are going to have probably 50 or 60 minute round timers. And that seems like a long time, but it really is not. When you, you know, start the round, the round clock starts, you go to your seat, you set your stuff up, you resolve your mulligans, you shuffle, you resolve your mulligans, you greet your opponent. Already a couple minutes have passed. And so if the game is going to go to, say, turn 10, 
then you have 55 minutes for both you and your opponent to take 10 turns. So that's 20 turns, that's less than three minutes that you each get per turn. I know this game can be really thinky and you can like sit and mull over options, but you really have to be mindful of your time while you're playing. If you don't want to go to time every single round, stretch out the day and get draws, unsatisfying outcome. So be really mindful of your turn and it's also totally appropriate to help your opponent be mindful of their turn too. If they're sitting there, you know, trying to decide what card to draw and like shuffling their hand and it takes more than like 20, 30 seconds, you can say like, hey, I, I need you to play a little faster. I want to be mindful of our time here. Um, if they're sitting and looking at their hand on their turn and they're like, okay, I'm going to cast this here. And then they're like, no, I'm not going to cast it here. I'm going to do this. And like, if they are just kind of mulling things over and not advancing the game state, once again, it's totally okay to just be like, hey, sorry, I need to be mindful of the time. If we could play a little bit faster, that would be great. And this is especially important if you're playing some kind of control deck. <laughs> um, like control has a bad reputation for going long and going to time in just every tournament setting, but uh, that's not entirely Control's fault. Yes, your game, or yet your yes, your deck plays the long game and it wins in the end game. But uh, in my experience, people sit down across from an opponent, realize that they're playing against a control deck, and they start taking their decisions a lot more seriously. They start taking more time to make sure that they don't just get absolutely blown out by a control deck, which is totally reasonable. But sometimes it means that like. Uh, you know, as a control deck, you're untapping, you're drawing your card, you're playing a minion in your passing, and then your opponent is taking like three or four minutes thinking about what they're doing. So if you're on a control deck, like, uh, you know, say you're playing a version of Iris Death Speaker list, I think it's important to uh, remind your opponent to be mindful of the clock periodically if they're going slow. Otherwise, you are going to end the day with a, having played a lot of very long games. And one final thing to talk about here, uh, you know, this is a, a game where a lot of people are playing, even when playing competitively, there's that kind of like casual friendly atmosphere, right? And so even in competitive games, in like the Tournament of Champions championship between Ira and Zalem, we saw them doing some like takes backs and stuff. So I think it is both appropriate and important to communicate with your opponent at the beginning of the game, before you mulligan, before you, you know, determine who's going first, before anything, to ask like, hey, what level of, you know, take backs are you okay with in this game? How do we want to play this game together? And I think it's, you know, totally reasonable if you say, I want to play a really tight game. I don't want to do take backs. Like if you've passed your turn and you want to change where you played your site, uh, I'm not okay with that. As long as you establish those things up front. On the other hand, I think it's totally fine and appropriate to ha agree with your opponent. Like, if no new information has been gained between decisions, that's an okay thing to take back. If I play a sinkhole, you know, on the right side of my board, and then I'm like playing my turn, I cast a minion, and then I realize like, actually, no, I want my sinkhole over here. That's fine. If you agree with your opponent about 
what level of taking back an action or redoing an action is fine, by all means, go for it. I think a safe baseline is if no new information has been gained, it's okay to turn things around. However, if you know your opponent draws a card and they like go to move and attack and you're like, oh, actually, I wanted to do this on my turn, it's probably too late. That's, uh, that's all we've got for you now. To everyone who's gonna be at SorceryCon, we're so excited for you. Have an excellent time. John and I are both really sad we can't be there, but like I said earlier, I will be at March of the Mortals in March, and we will see you at other big events throughout the year. We're, uh, we're hoping to have some, have some big things coming down the pipeline, so we will see you soon. Hey, 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 everyone. Thanks so much for listening to episode four. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you're out there playing tons of sorcery, going to big events, and working on organizing new big events for your community and beyond. In addition to being hyped for the upcoming in-person events happening around the world, John and I are also extremely excited for season four of Sorcery League. The official announcement is out and signups are open now. As you're listening to this, signups for season four have opened. We know a bunch of you have been chomping at the bit waiting for this season to start and the wait is officially over. Don't forget that John and I are sponsoring this season with a set of beta cores and those cards will be given to four lucky winners at the end of the season. Everyone who plays us throughout the season will be entered into a lottery and you'll get one point just for playing against one of us and an additional point if you manage to beat one of us. So make sure you schedule a game with one or both of us in the coming weeks. Alright, that's all for now. Take it easy until next time and keep on slinging those spells and placing those sites.